asks you, make sure everyone, when you're coming in, if you haven't had a chance, grab one of these, because we're actually going to be going through them together. If someone were to ask you, so what do Christians believe? I mean, not everything that Christians believe, but what are the essence, the main points that Christians believe? Any answer that we give should, at some point, contain within it the fact that Christians believe that there will be a final judgment, or a last judgment. It's part of the Christian faith. In fact, it is a core Christian belief. It has been from the beginning. We believe that when Christ returns in glory, the Creed says that after he rescues his church and destroys their enemies, as we talked about last week, that the main thing that he's going to do when he returns is that he will judge the living and the dead. In this great and last judgment, we believe that all of humanity, everyone, from every age of history, will be restored from their graves so that they're in the flesh. That's important. The judgment is to take place in the flesh. So we'll be restored, both wicked and righteous, in the flesh, and in that state, we will stand trial before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is executing judgment on behalf of his Father. It's the Father's judgment, but he's delegated that to the Son. So the Son will exercise judgment on his Father's behalf. And standing before him, each one of us will receive exactly what we deserve in our bodies and in our souls, whether that be an eternal reward or an eternal punishment. So this is what we most firmly believe as Christians. Now that such a day is certainly and infallibly coming, without question, is in fact why we need to be saved. It's why we need salvation. It's not enough that the devil is destroyed and death is abolished. Those are wonderful and necessary things. But that's not the only problem that we have. A still greater threat looms over our race. In fact, in the first coming, one of the things that Jesus came to tell us, came the first time to tell us, was that God is going to cleanse his creation of all defilement. He's going to wipe out everything that is impure and unclean in what he's made. And without Christ coming to intervene and to aid us, we too will be swept away by that judgment. Everything Christ did for us in his life, in history, was actually getting us ready to face that day and to emerge from it victorious. So this is why we need salvation, because there is coming a day of judgment. But, and this is a new way of thinking about it, judgment isn't just the reason why we need to be saved. There is a certain sense in which judgment itself is salvation. That's an interesting thought. It's actually part of how God is saving us. It's the last and final piece of the puzzle that completes the economy in which God is making all things new. I've got to explain myself, because that's a pretty far out statement. What I mean is that salvation is ultimately about a new humanity in a new world where Christ is all in all. The glory of that new human condition is the absence of all that is unclean, of all that keeps God at a distance. 
the exquisiteness of our joy, and we believe there will be plenty of joy, well, that joy can only take root and blossom in a world where there is only light and no darkness. The kind of blessedness God has planned for us, and he has, that can only exist where there is love without hypocrisy. If we're going to dwell in peace and safety, what the Old Testament calls shalom, it will only be when, to the last man and woman, woman, the entire human race is loyal and devoted to our king, with no rebels lurking amongst us. So in other words, in order for our, the full and final reality of salvation to take place in history, in the most concrete sense of what it means to be saved, the last smudges of the devil's fingerprints have to be removed from our world, from our, uh, ourselves, from our families, from our communities, from our home. And that is why we need, we need judgment. The judgment is a cleansing. It's a purging. First of all, it removes the wicked from the earth. That's the first thing. But it does more than that. It also removes the faithless and the hypocrite from among the church. And if there happens to be any remaining dross still in the or weakness in the hearts and consciousness of the saints, it will be sure to purge that as well. So if we are counted among the righteous, judgment is not a bad thing. It actually achieves, accomplishes our salvation. It brings about the very world that we have that we belong in. So it's not a terrifying thing, brothers and sisters. It's not something that we should not want to ever think about because it's such a dark subject. Our hearts might skip a beat in that moment. I'm sure they will. I mean, the, the awesomeness and the awfulness of the solemnity and gravity of the moment will certainly uh, grip us in that, in that hour. But for Christ's faithful sheep, it will turn out for our lasting joy. It will bless us. That's kind of a new way of thinking about judgment. But it's true. Now, unfortunately, the doctrine of final judgment has suffered a decline in Western Christianity. Now, both sides of the Western fence, amongst Protestants, there is a tendency, it has been from the beginning, to emphasize salvation by grace through faith. And to fixate so much on the doctrine of justification, that was Luther's thing, right? That an imbalance here has pushed the doctrine of judgment to the periphery. It's diminished it. It's not something we really want to talk about. It's hard to make it fit our theological categories. Well, Roman Catholics have done the same thing. After Vatican II, which was their council in the 1960s, Rome went through and removed from their liturgy almost every reference to judgment. In either case, these moves, I believe, have pushed us out of sync from the Bible's teaching on this topic. Now, it is true that in the medieval period, Christianity in the West blew judgment way out of proportion. Medieval Christians were all fascinated with hell and judgment and, and death and so forth, and that needed correction. It did. But as we all know, when you correct something, when you react against something, what often happens? Right? We overreact. And I very much believe that that has happened in both Protestantism and in the past century, even 
in Rome. Now, when you combine this with today's cultural climate, what's the cultural climate of your friends at school? Right? Personal accountability? Nah. It's someone else's fault. Something somebody else did to me. It's never my fault. What about retributive justice? Justice for the sake of punishment and rather than actually uh, changing people. Well, that's, that's not something we like today. How about absolute standards of right and wrong across cultures that could be the basis for a universal judgment? Again, in our postmodern world, that just, that just doesn't make sense. And our culture ferociously intimidates any suggestion, any hint that there are distinctions among people and that some will be condemned. You can't even say that without bringing the wrath of your fellow students or teachers down on your head if you go to a public school. So just as the doctrine of hell is getting harder and harder to hold on to without succumbing and caving in to cultural pressure, so the doctrine of final judgment is also a chopping block in our culture. But we must stand firm in that ancient faith, that historic faith, the tradition of the apostles that has been carefully and faithfully preserved and passed down in every generation. And this faith is clear and resolute and unbending on this point. There will be a day of final judgment when Jesus returns. Now, we're going to change our format this morning, um, and that's because we're going to be talking about some things that are controversial, some things that may rustle some feathers here, ruffle some feathers here. Um, that's, not ever, that's not always a bad thing, right? Especially when we want to learn. Uh, but I don't want you to have to take it from me. So I want you to see this in the Bible. I want you to see inspired Holy Scripture saying these things to you. So what we're going to do is we're going to go on a tour of uh, New Testament passages, and we'll read these together. Um, I'll, I'll probably skip some in order to have time. And I will try to get done in time for our groups, but it might not happen uh, this time, just because this is a new format and there's a lot here. Um, but we'll, we'll try so uh, let's start with Father Steve here, and we'll just go around in a circle. And I'll, I'm going to make comments after most of these. And if you see an underlined phrase, um, those are really key distinctives, and so try to read those with greater emphasis. Uh, bring those out. So, Father Steve, can you start with uh, Acts 10? Acts 10.42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead... Thank you. So here Peter is talking, and he's talking to Cornelius, the Gentile, the, the Roman centurion. And he's telling him what it is that Christians believe. What is it that the apostles are preaching about Jesus? And he's doing it very succinctly. Just a few short sentences. I mean, boom, 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 ABC. And right there along with the crucifixion and the resurrection and forgiveness of sins is the judgment. That's an interesting way of evangelizing. Now, this phrase, the judge of the living and the dead, occurs not once but three times in the New Testament. And it's, it, this is, in fact, the form that is found in nearly all of the ancient creeds. There were quite a few creeds, not just the ones that we say every Sunday. There were quite a number of them. And they all, almost all of them, made reference to the judgment of the living and the dead. And this also works its way into the Eucharistic prayers, particularly in the Eastern Church, that Christians would be saying, or the priests would be saying, um, every time they had the Mass. Now, 
What are the living and the dead? There were a few fathers who, you know, they like to take things spiritually, right? Don't ever take anything literally. That was often a mistake. It's always entertaining when they do that. Uh, and some of them said, well, this, the living, they're the, the spiritually living, the righteous. And the dead, those are the spiritually dead, the wicked. So Jesus is going to judge both righteous and wicked, and that is true. Usually their conclusions were right. Their ways of getting there, however, are sometimes suspect. And most fathers said, well, no, let's just take it literally, uh, because it makes perfect sense. The living are those who haven't died yet at the time that Jesus comes back. And the dead are those who have or will have died by that time, and that therefore must be raised from their graves and reunited with their flesh before standing and receiving judgment. In either case, however we interpret living in the dead, when you put the two together, it definitely means everyone. The whole of humanity, from every age of human history, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Christ is calling to account the whole of the human race. Now, Peter will go on to repeat this same phrase in his letter uh, in in 1 Peter when he says that Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead, but for time's sake, we'll skip that. And um, and, uh, Evan, would you like to read the next one? Would you like to pass that on? Okay. Paul, if you could read uh, 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 2. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. So Peter's used this phrase twice, and now Paul uses the same phrase. You start to get the feeling that this was uh, starting to be part of an early creed. Here, Paul is giving a final commission to Timothy. Paul's about to die. This is his last letter. He's in prison. He's not going to get out after this. And he tells Timothy, he wants Timothy, this is his last thing he has to say to him. Keep in mind the final judgment. Keep that before your mind, before your eyes. And in light of that, be in earnest. You're a bishop in the church. Be ceaseless in preaching in convincing, rebuking, exhorting, and teaching the people, preparing them for that day. See, that's the point. This is, in fact, what pastors and teachers in the church are supposed to be doing, just as Jesus did during his ministry, getting God's people ready for that last day. And they do this not just by the sacraments and by teaching, that's a very important part of it, but also... Paul says, by rebuking us. Now they do that gently, they do that lovingly, but they do that firmly. They rebuke us for our sinful ways when they see it. They try as best they can to convince us to live righteously before that day comes. So, listen to your pastors. They are not primarily life coaches or counselors seeking to help us navigate this life as best we can. That's really not at all what pastors are for. They are here for your eternal good. And we need them. Okay, uh, Bill, Acts 17. Acts 17, 30, 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, 
because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Right, so here the, the phrase has changed a little bit, but just slightly. So the living and the dead has been replaced by the word world, but the meaning is the same. And once again, this is part of the apostles' core evangelistic message. Paul is preaching to pagans in the city of Athens, and he's giving the basics of the Christian faith, and this is where it culminates. Um, so next I have a section here on how righteous this judgment will be, but we're going to skip that. Um, I left it in the pages in case you wanted to look at that on your own. But let's move on to the section on, on works, because that's where things are going to get interesting. Um, so, Father Eric, you want to read it, uh, Matthew 16 for us? But the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Read that last phrase one more time. He will reward each according to his works. Does anyone feel a little bit uneasy about what was just read? Yeah. Let's be honest. If you're coming from an evangelical background, there's something, something down deep inside that's kind of a little bit worried about where this is going. Right? This is the Bible, and this is Jesus here speaking, and we, we should not be afraid to honestly approach this and see what it says. The fact is, brothers, that the Bible teaches that at the day of judgment, we will be rewarded or punished. The word reward means both. It's not just used in a positive sense. According to our works. Not our faith. Not a single passage anywhere that speaks of judgment according to faith. It always speaks of judgment according to our works. And we're actually going to look at these passages. That is, our deeds... Our acts, our choices, our conduct, the things that we have done. And of course, this starts to get a little sticky if you're coming from the background most of us are coming from, because there are many within Protestant ranks who suppose, and this is the way the logic sometimes goes, that our works, well, they're not going to come into consideration on the last day, because after all, we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not of works. So no matter what our record might be, they would reason, if we're believers in Jesus and we've received the forgiveness of sins, we'll be okay because faith is really the only thing that matters in the end. Now, does that, does that click? Does that sound right? Does that sound familiar, that line of reasoning? Now, I, I somewhat caricature it. There's always more nuance in it. But if you come from an evangelical background, that's not too far from the kind of thinking that we've been brought up in. But I want to uh, very gently and uh, firmly assert that that way of thinking is quite a bit out of sync with the Bible. And it's definitely contrary to the historic teaching of the church. Now the Bible does teach the forgiveness of sins received by faith. And it's, a faith, and it's a forgiveness you don't have to earn. It's given freely when you're baptized or brought into Christ and made members of his body. And no one can earn that. 
The Bible very clearly teaches that. But the Bible also (coughs) teaches just as clearly and repeatedly that on the last day, when Jesus judges, he will judge according to our works. In the world of the Bible, these two things are not incompatible. They, they, they sit well together in apostolic Christianity. And, and if they don't sit well together in our own minds, then we shouldn't just reject one just so that we resolve the issue. We need to come to the fact, face the fact that the Bible does, in fact, teach both. Somehow these two must exist side by side in our theology, and we should not diminish one uh, in order to favor the other. Um, I'm not going to resolve this just yet. I want us to keep uh, moving. So um, if we can have First Peter. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. All right, so some um, Protestant uh, interpreters have tried to deal with it this way. Well, okay, there's a judgment according to works. That's clear. But it's not for us. Uh, it's for unbelievers. Believers don't have to go through that. They're exempt because we're judged by faith. But that is not correct. This passage, um, actually many of these passages, but this one particularly, is talking to Christians. In the context of this verse, there are those who, quote, call on the Father. There are those who, quote, are redeemed by the blood of Christ. And how explicit can you get? And there are those who, through Christ, believe in God. That's how... Peter describes his audience in the immediate context of this verse. And to this company, the company of the redeemed, the company of those who are in Christ, he tells them, you must be holy in all your conduct because God will judge according to each one's work. So without any doubt, God will judge the works of the redeemed, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. Okay, so others say, well, okay, that, that's unavoidable. So, yes, maybe the, the Christians are judged by works, but at that judgment that's by works, it's not a heaven or hell kind of thing. It's just uh, varying degrees of rewards. The more good works, the more rewards, uh, but nobody's going to hell as a result of this judgment by works. And again, that interpretation is not true. Now, it is true that we will, in fact, receive rewards in varying degrees. That is true. But it is also and still a heaven or hell issue. Notice what the verse says. First it says that God will judge without partiality. That means that God doesn't take bribes. He doesn't show favor because of who you are. Oh, you're, you know, Mr. Uh, Important. No. Or wealth. Or power. Or influence. None of that means anything. None of that's going to save anybody on that day. It's not what we have to offer. The only thing, the only thing the judge considers is what we have done in our works. And that this knowledge that God is impartial and is going to give a just judgment based on our works, Peter says should cause us to live how? In fear. In fear. Now fear can be a bad thing. We're not talking about a pathological fear that cripples us. But we're talking about a healthy, measured, godly fear. The kind of fear you want a child to have for their father if they were to disobey. 
a fear that is combined with love. But it is a real fear. And the clear implication of this fear that Peter wants us to have is that this judgment that is by works and that it is impartial might in fact result in something we don't like. If we take no care to conduct ourselves in holiness. So this judgment is not just for rewards, brothers and sisters. It's for punishment too. The redeemed in Christ could experience either. Peter wants the knowledge of this fact to insert an element of godly fear into how we conduct our lives. Because that's going to determine the result of that judgment. Well, what about Paul? This is Peter, but after all, we have Paul, right? The great theologian of grace, the champion of faith. Surely he's going to give us a different story, a different read on this. Well, let's see. Second Corinthians. Anyone would make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, Paul said the same thing. He says, first of all, uh, he's talking about Christians. He says we. He's talking to Christians here. We must stand before this judgment seat and receive the reward that, uh, for the things that we have done. The things we've done in the body. That's, that's works. And again, it's not just rewards for good deeds. He says here, all deeds will be recompensed, both good and bad. All right, well, what about the book of Romans? Now, there we're going to get lucky, right? Because that's the book about justification. So, Romans chapter 2. Do you want to read that? In accordance with your hardness and your impertinent heart, you are treasuring what's for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works for his good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, we struck out again. So, once again, uh, Paul tells us that judgment is according to works. Now, Paul is speaking to Jews here, specifically, and these Jews were hiding behind their circumcision and behind their ceremonial purity laws and other things Jewish, as if those things made them righteous. And yet, behind closed doors, their lives were lives marked by moral filthiness and godless conduct. And Paul wants them to know that those outward rituals, those, those badges of Jewishness, and even if we're talking about the sacraments of the church, that these things will not save us on the day of judgment. What matters, according to Paul, is how we lived. Did we work what is good? Not just at one point in our lives, you know, when we first got converted and we're all on fire for Jesus, but he says, did we continue patiently enduring to the end in doing good? Overall, after our baptism, after we became Christians, overall, were our deeds righteous or were they unrighteous? That's what's going to matter 
on the day of judgment, says Paul. And further, this passage again underscores that this isn't just about degrees of reward. Paul says that those who have done good will receive what? eternal life. The whole thing. And what happens to those who've done evil? Tribulation and anguish. Yeah. Tribulation, anguish, wrath. That can only mean hell. So this is, in fact, a heaven or hell thing. And according to Paul, in the book of Romans, no less, it is by works. Now what he teaches about justification by faith in this very book which is a wonderful subject. I'd love to get in someday. But it in no way diminishes this basic Christian teaching. Jesus taught it. We'll see that more in a minute. Peter taught it. Paul taught it. Somehow we have to fit these two things together. Well, we see the phrase occurring in the mouth of Christ himself in the letter to the church of Thyatira in Revelation 2. He promises judgment according to works, and he's speaking to Christians. But... For the sake of time, we'll jump to Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there we have it once again. Judgment will be according to our works. Now, Revelation 20 is a difficult chapter. It could be read in what's called a premillennial way. I'm not going to define that, but you could read it in such a way that you could argue that this judgment here is actually a judgment only of the wicked, not of the saints. Um, some would think that the saints will be judged a thousand years earlier. Maybe, if that's the way you want to read Revelation 20, and I have no interest in coming down on that issue. The fathers had different ideas on that as well. But the saints can't squirm out of it that easily, even if that is the case. Because two chapters later, Revelation 22, what do we find there? Go ahead. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. Blessed are those who did his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexual immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lot. Thank you. So this is the last chapter of the Bible. This is the end. This is the last page, in fact. And this is how it all shakes out. A court speaking to saints here, Christ with his own mouth, this is in red letters if you've got one of those kind of Bibles, Christ with his own mouth says he's coming to give to each according to his or her work or deeds. Whether this is in fact the same judgment as Revelation 20 really doesn't matter. 
Where, whenever this judgment of the church takes place, Christ is very clear, it will take place according to works. And the outcome of his judgment is that only those who do his commandments will enter into the city and enjoy everlasting life. He doesn't say, blessed are those who believe, or blessed are those who are baptized, or those who said the sinner's prayer, or have had a conversion experience, or have been faithfully attending church and taking communion their entire lives. He says, blessed are those who do his commandments. When Christ judges according to their works, these, those who do his commandments, will emerge from that blessed and honored with eternal life. Evildoers, no matter what may be true of them religiously, will be shut out. After all that the Apostle Paul has had to say on the subject of justification and faith over the decades of the first century, this is still the note upon which the Bible ends. And it is Jesus' consistent teaching on the matter. So there we have it. Seven passages in the New Testament that affirm unanimously that we will be judged according to our works. If we are committed to our Bibles, and I believe we are, that's the best part of the evangelical is part of the, our Anglican DNA. We're committed to our Bibles. If that's true, this is something we must believe. Now, before moving on, I want to be very, very clear that this does not throw salvation by grace into question. If we are judged righteous on that day, it will have only been by grace that it was ever possible for that to happen. Only grace, special grace too, operating within can produce the kind of life that pleases God. And even then, we fail. We fail all the time. But there is grace sufficient to cover that too if we remain repentant. So when God rewards us according to our works, which he clearly said he would, what he's actually doing is rewarding his own grace in us. We're also not saying that salvation is of ourselves, that we've got to accomplish it. And that it's not through Christ. Of course it is through Christ. It's through Christ alone. Because it's only because of what Christ did that salvation for the human race is even possible. If the atonement hadn't have happened, none of us, no matter how good we lived our lives, could possibly have been saved. And when you personally do good deeds that are actually pleasing to God, the kind that he will reward on that day, now listen to this. It is actually Christ doing those good deeds in you and through you. So when the Father rewards us for them, He is rewarding His Son for what His Son has done in His church. Now that's theological dynamite. And lastly, I want I would I, I want to say that I would be heartbroken if anyone left this Sunday school hour. Uh, feeling burdened uh, if they are a tender soul that really loves the Lord because they might fear maybe I haven't done enough good deeds. That is not the outcome that I want out of this class. It's not about the size of our pile of good deeds. 
never has been. The Lord was very clear when he said, To much, to whom much is given, much will be required. But to whom little is given, little is required. To whom little opportunity is a thief on the cross. How much opportunity did he have to do good deeds? Very little. But the few hours he did have, he used well. What matters is what our life story as a whole, after our baptism or conversion to Christ, has to say about the state of our heart. If the Lord sees what little works we have, and most of us, to be honest, have very little. I certainly do. And he sees those little works mixed with failure, as they always are, but he sees through that a heart that loves him, that tries. That out of love for him kept up the struggle for holiness until the end. If that's what he sees, all will be well. Even if that pile is small. It's not about perfection. Never has been. And it's certainly not about the pile of the size of your pile of good deeds. It's about whether he was truly our Lord. Whether we were true and faithful and loyal disciples who kept our baptismal vows and stuck with him. That's what it's about. The only people who need to fear, I mean like really fear, like get nervous, are those people who aren't even trying. Who've forgotten that the Lord, that Jesus is Lord. When Christ examines our works as a whole, he'll know which is which. Well, next we have some texts uh, that call out specific factors that will impact or influence how our judgment goes. And uh, these are important and don't get a lot of attention, so I want us to, to look at these. So, uh, Matthew 6. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So I'm just going to ask the question, according to this text, what might happen to us if we are an unforgiving kind of person? We will be forgiven by God. Think of the implications that has for our doctrine of how it is that we're saved. How we go around treating others impacts whether we will be saved on the last day. Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Then his master, after he had called them, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had paid on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you from his heart. Uh, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Obviously, I took out a big chunk of text there for time's sake, but we all know the, the passage, right? Very very famous story. Uh, but it often doesn't get the attention it deserves because it, there's a pretty powerful theological point being made here that's kind of shocking. It, it, well, it is shocking. You see, this man that we're talking about had been forgiven. His debt had been wiped clean. Wiped off the books. But how does the story end? With him having to pay every cent he owes. 
it's hard to make any other conclusion that the things that he was forgiven of were unforgiven, if I can use that term, as a result of his hard-heartedness toward his fellow servants. Doesn't require much creative imagination to to figure out what Jesus might be saying could threaten us if we are if we act likewise. Matthew seven. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Judge not. Oh, the world loves this verse, <laughs> right? This text has been badly misused, but don't let the world take this text from you. It's a very precious text for us. It does not mean that we can't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean that we can't say that behavior there is wrong. What it does mean is that Christ's disciples must be like him, bent toward mercy. Inclined, dispositionally, toward compassion, patient with failure. Accepting the fact that people, including ourselves, are just not perfect. They're going to fail us. And that's okay. Well, it's not, but, but it is. It has to be. Right? We must be forgiving when people wrong us. We must always make allowance for human weakness. We must always desire not fire and damnation on our neighbor who's wrong, who's done wrong, but repentance and restoration. It must always be what we want to see happen with our enemies people that do even wicked things around us. Because isn't that what we want God to do to us? We must treat others with the same leniency that we wish to receive from God on that last day. Because Jesus tells us that how we treat others will impact how God treats us. James chapter 2. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs. Triumphs. Over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow, that sounds like such a pregnant phrase. If we show no mercy to other people, you know, you do wrong to me, boom, you're gone. I'm done with you. Right? We we all know that attitude. Right? Maybe we've felt that in our own breasts. But if that's our disposition, if that's who we are, Jesus, or James here, teaches us that we can expect to receive no mercy from God. But if we do show mercy, if our record is of being a merciful person, that, according to James, will go a long way on judgment. God will remember the mercy that we have shown others and will show us similar mercy. So be wise. Invest in your future. Be, become a merciful person. 1 Peter chapter 4. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Wow, another pregnant phrase. Love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, you can interpret this in multiple ways. I'm going to tell you the way I think you should interpret it, where the church fathers interpreted it. Uh, first of all, I want to say that this passage is clearly talking about the judgment. We're talking about the second coming. And in light of the judgment that will take place in the second coming, Peter exhorts his audience to be serious about godliness. And above all, 
remembering that judgment is coming, above all, he says, love one another, because love will cover a multitude of sins. On the day of judgment, our record of having been a loving person who fervently loved others, and particularly our brethren in the Lord, is of such value before God that, according to Peter, it can cover or make up for many faults that we have. None of us are perfect. We all are going to have sins and shortcomings to answer for. But if we love in the biblical sense of sacrificing ourselves for others, then many of those sins, not all, but many, a multitude, can simply be covered. Such is the value of love in God's sight. So again, invest in your future. Be a loving, become a loving person. You will not regret that on the day of judgment. All right, so uh, there's a section here on the rewarding of good deeds, and that's something that we're going to skip. But now I have a question for you guys. Um, This last section is on the winnowing of the church. Do you want to keep on and go through this, or would you like to stop and have our discussion groups? I'm I'm good with that. I'd like to go to the discussion groups. Discussion groups? So maybe what you could do is form discussion groups and and look at some of these uh, winnowing of the church questions and discuss those in your groups. You want to do that? What do you guys think? I think you want to have, he has a lot of questions. I don't think. Is that what you were saying? I have like questions about the other sections, about the receiving according to the works and stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, let me, uh, let me go ahead and give you my conclusion. I'm going to skip over um, these, this winnowing of the church. Just, just to say, and go ahead and think about these things at home. This was a major theme in Jesus' teaching ministry. The dividing, the winnowing, the separating of the good and the bad uh, in his church when he returns. Um, but for the sake of uh, us having some time together, um, I will skip that um, and come to our conclusion, which is... So we believe that when Christ returns, he will judge the living and the dead. And he will take into account what love and mercy and forgiveness that we have shown others. But in the end, he will render to each according to their works. To some, eternal life with varying degrees of reward. And to some, eternal punishment. Now for those outside of Christ, there is only one outcome. But for the church, this is a great winnowing. When her mixed composition comes to an end and the bad are separated from the good. That's the part we skipped. In the end, the church, having been chastened and winnowed and purged and purified and made clean, will be dressed with the white garments of the righteous acts of the saints. And she will be a thing, we will be a thing of exquisite beauty. Humanity as it was meant to be. And with this humanity, God will dwell forever. Salvation will then be complete. The gospel is ended. The story of Christ is at its end. Though perhaps in certain ways, since the creed reminds us that his kingdom will have no end, perhaps 
it's only the beginning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.